0: Welcome to the bullpen session. This is Patrick Lillis. Thank you for listening. Glad you're here. Hope everyone's doing okay. Uh, before I share the interview with the, this week's guest, Jenny Warner, literary manager and dramaturg from Jiva Theater up in Rochester, New York. Just want to share. I'm back in Brooklyn. I was actually up in Rochester. I was up there for ten weeks. I stayed with my mom during COVID and self isolation, and wanted to come back to Brooklyn to see my home, and it's good to be back. Feels oddly normal. I mean, obviously, there's people are social distancing, and Brooklyn is wearing masks, and seems, uh, seems good. But for me, it's just good to be back at my desk. Uh, just thinking about the normalcy and thinking about the... Uh, one of the things that you know, it's, I'm looking forward to really being back at normal and back in the studio. The interview today with Jenny, there was a couple did it over Zoom and there's a little static that happened that doesn't, never happened before, didn't happen after. I, I don't know what the connection was and it only happens a couple times. You might hear it in the edit, you'll probably hear it, but uh, tried to clean it up. And that was frustrating because uh, the conversation was excellent. And it's funny, I, I've been meaning to talk to Jenny since we started the podcast because I, hey, I, she's great. I've worked with her at Jiva a couple of times and share a similar value system. And also, and I think it's good for playwrights and our, people to know, you know, people. a lot of students now are talking about wanting to be a traumaturg, which is something that is new, meaning new that students understand what that is new I'm old it may be new in the last decade but uh, they're having a real interest in it I liked her talking about what got her into it and I also think it's good for playwrights to hear about building relationships with literary managers what the role is and um, one of the things we talked about is the fact that they cultivate a lot of projects at Chiva that deal with community and you know right creating opportunities for writers to write plays about the story of Rochester or to get to know the story of Rochester and I I really appreciated that because I think you know obviously the farm does it with the college collab but I think it was it's really good because it's one of the stories we're telling why are we doing it you know and who are we representing and another thing she said that I liked is who are we not representing so it's 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 great insight in that and as we're so I'm excited to share the conversation with you but also as we are entering this phase it's funny that COVID it feels interesting across the country of what people are doing and you know how are they going to start doing theater and how are they going to do it in colleges and I will say it was a friend that was supposed to be produced at Jeeva Elizabeth Wilder is doing something to look up she's doing porch projects which are Plays that can be performed on a porch and social distance and the audience can be outside and social distance. And I was thinking about that because uh, we're thinking about how we're going to go back and that's somebody who's going back actively and intentionally with uh, something that's meaningful to them and that they've created. And I think, how are we going to be that? Because I think everywhere in the country is viewing it a little differently, but everyone's aware that we have to do something. So... I think today I'm just thinking about, I, I from the conversation with Jenny about the commissions and, and, and community stories, I started thinking, right, when we continue to tell the stories and when we go back into the theater or into theater, not Zoom presentations and radio plays and the things that we're doing, but actually figuring out live performance, you know, to be intentional about the stories we're telling and that we're making sure that we're inclusive in whose story we're telling and how we're telling the stories. And I say that, I think it's clear, but just social distancing and, but not, not because just the safety, but what, okay, given that these are new rules, what are we doing that is meaningful to us and effective? These stories could be told in this way and they're better for it. And uh, probably thinking a lot about this because I just had a conversation with a dramaturg and a literary manager and, um, i'm from rochester it is beautiful you get to hear a lot about jiva and their process but you also you know i think about it and think about it in the you know major regional theater in your area your hometown and just uh or across the country and it's it's good to hear how thoughtful they are and it was lovely to talk to jenny and i hope you enjoy our conversation with that play ball
1: really fun. I mean, you know, what I love about it is being able to connect with people who I am not seeing right now. So, that has that's been such a wonderful, you know, just wonderful experience. And some of the people who've been on the podcast are people who are were connected with shows that we had to cancel. And so that's that also has been sort of bittersweet, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, the first one I listened to was Elizabeth Yes. And
0: uh, it is bitter. It's it's I was glad you got to connect with them and it was bittersweet. And are you are are you doing her play? Is that scheduled? Is that going to happen? I I heard the season announcement and I don't remember if she's one of the ones that got postponed
1: or. Yeah, we were in the middle of rehearsals for that play um, when this all happened. We were two weeks into rehearsals. And so I it's I don't know exactly when it's gonna happen, Um, but you know, the set is 85% built. Um, The costumes are all ready, the first act is staged, you know, so it it feels like it would be silly not to finish it. (laughs) Um, But I don't know when we'll do that because nobody knows when we're gonna be able to be back in the theater. Yeah, that is the big question,
0: and uh, and it's funny. When the first half is staged, I'm like, is it staged socially distanced? Is everybody?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. I mean, there's only three characters in the play, um so we would have to do some reworking of it. um I bet it would be possible to do it so that they stay six feet away from each other. I don't know about doing it with masks on. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> I,
0: I, I'm, the farm is talking to a college about writing a play that can be staged six feet apart. And, and, and then all of a sudden I realize, like, cause you could do, you know, you could do it. There could be border issues. There could be, uh, pen pal, whatever, you know, who are finding different reasons. But I thought, all oh, right, but then as soon as they get impassioned and start to yell, then they have to be 12 feet apart.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And how do you manage that? You know, you, you can't do any songs anymore. You can't do musicals.
0: I have this fantasy idea that like, people are able to catch up on reading. And I want to know if that is true or not. Our literary departments able to like, oh, there's, you know, there's got to always be a stack of plays to look at, but you're in production, you're in development, you're in something. And is that happening?
1: It is happening. We are, we're slowly, you know, we were probably a year behind in our reading list and we are slowly catching up, which is great. Although I also don't feel like I want to tell writers who we don't want to do their work or you know I mean you know whatever it might not be the right time for us I don't want to tell anybody no so
0: (laughs) right Right. the Um, response doesn't have to go out right now (laughs) exactly
1: Uh exactly but yeah, we are we are doing a lot of reading and and talking a lot more about what we read. You know, a lot of times we will we'll read plays and write reports about them and we don't necessarily talk to each other about the plays. I I have a small department. It's myself and one full-time staff member and one sort of part-time staff member. And so a lot of times we will we'll read plays write reports I'll read them but we don't necessarily always talk about them in depth and right now we're taking advantage to of this time to really read read more plays that we all are reading and talk about them together which means that we're really having a a deeper consideration of the play.
0: Yeah, and whether, you know, I I, I think the reality of you can't pick the play now, but it, you know, is true, but you have a better relationship to the writer just yeah. by having that conversation, yeah. you know, better, better appreciation of their work and what everybody thinks about it. I think that's so funny. I'm like going to ask, if, I'm going to start in the beginning, but right now I'm going to ask about these things like when you get to what is, what, what is the job? I think that's an interesting thing that people don't totally appreciate. When you're reading new plays and you're only gonna be able to produce one, two. I mean, for a little while, Jeeva was sort of doing a lot, which was, uh, I would say more than the others, regional theaters.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: And yet there's still a limited number, only so much you can do. What do you, what do you find the role to be of the literary department? And, and literary manager, what do you think in that process, in the part of, we won't get into the whole thing right now, but in the process of familiarizing with new work and new writers?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because one of my grad school professors once told me that the your number one job when you open any play is to find a reason to love it, right? And so that is, that's absolutely the way as a dramaturg, I approach reading every play. But as a literary director, a literary manager, I have to find a reason to love it, yes, but it it also has to be a reason that my audience will love it, you know, and so we have to be looking for things that, um, that will work for the theater, that, you know, uh, communicate the stories that we want to be telling, that come from the voices we want to be telling stories of right now. We're really trying to broaden the, the field of stories that we tell on our stage at Jiva. So I have to really be thinking about who it is who's writing the story. What the story is, and if it's a story that we haven't heard before. Um, so I'm really looking for a lot right now. I'm 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 asking a lot of playwrights right now because because we have a limited number of of new plays that we can do in a season. It real it has to fit so many different things.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that's it's got to be challenging to be looking at that lens because I'm going to say as somebody myself who works on new plays, I I approach it with the dramaturgical sense of uh, nobody set out to write a bad play. Like, right. Let, right. Let, me, let me find out what I love about exactly. this play and what they loved love about that. this play. And then you're right. Then all of a sudden you go into the, well, what am I investing in? What is organizationally investing in and committing to? And then there's so many other questions. And I don't think, and it doesn't disclose, Credit the the playwright that doesn't get picked for the next level. It's just because it's a next level of relationship, right? I mean, that's how I think of
1: it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and there are so many playwrights whose work I love, but we can't do right now. You know, and so we need to uh, nurture those relationships. And one day we will be able to do a play by them. But it's not. It's we can't you know, I want to just do all the plays all the time, (laughs) but we can't do that, you know. Um, So that's the, that's the other challenge too, is that there are so many writers um, that we have worked with that I adore and want to keep working with. There are so many writers that, uh, that are new to us that we want to bring into the Jiva family, but it, yeah, it's, you, you kind of have to pick the right time and the right play, and, and sometimes that takes a while to get there.
0: When you said tra- this was one of the questions I had when you said at my grad school you went for dramaturgy. I did. And what inspired that? Because now I I hear that now more from undergraduate students than than I than I did 5 years ago or before that anybody thought realized that oh that's a career and that's a career for me. Right. And I'm curious what what made you think like oh that's I'm that's what I want to go specialize in? Well, it's interesting that you would ask that. Um,
1: (laughs) Because of course, you know, I did not, I didn't, when I was an undergrad, I didn't know what dramaturgy was until uh, I was working. So I was a double major in theater and history. And I was directing a play, uh, Brian Friel's play, Translations, as my honors thesis uh, at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. And I, I had gotten a grant to do some research over the summer. And part of the grant required me to go to the nearest, you know, university with a grad school program and uh, talk to the head of their graduate department in theater. And so I went to the University of Iowa, which was the closest school with a graduate program. And I talked to Art Baraka and who um, was running the graduate program. And he, I was telling him about what I was doing. And he said, you know, there's a word for that. And I was like, what? There's no word for when you research all this stuff about the context of the play. And then, you know, and because I was doing a lobby display, I was, I was spending all this time researching, you know, the context of the world that Brian Friel is creating on stage. And I had no idea that that was a thing that people did, you know, and that wasn't just part of um, direct and So I I was kind of floored by that. And at the time, there were five places that you could go to get an MFA in dramaturgy from. Only five. And the University of Massachusetts at Amherst was one of those five. Um, And so that's, um, I, I... went there. And one of the reasons that I went there was because New World Theater was a professional theater company on the campus of the university. Um, And they were a theater company that sadly is no longer in existence, but they produced and presented the work of artists of color. And I knew that my undergraduate training had mostly been reading the plays of Dead White Guys, And I wanted to change that. And so that's why I went to the University of Massachusetts and how I how I sort of came out of that program, a completely different person and artist than I probably could have even imagined.
0: And the theater company was
1: active when you were there? It was. Yeah, it was really active. I, I, as soon as I got there, started interning with them. I ended up, you know, I worked with them throughout the whole time that I was at the university. Most of my dramaturgy assignments were co-productions between the theater department and New World Theater. So it was a really, really powerful part of my training. And, And
0: when you were doing that, did you... So funny. I realize I have this podcast. I'm supposed to ask for the audience. And now part of me, is just, <laughs> I went, I applied at UMass for directing and uh, it was a great program yeah. right out of undergrad. And I remember, and I knew a little bit about the other things that offered when you were doing dramaturgy, did they, did you also get to direct? Cause uh, during that program, I feel like one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I have the great benefit of having worked with you and uh, yeah. you know, and I had a great experience and I felt like, oh, this is somebody who thinks like me about new plays and, and I appreciated it. And I thought, so did you get to direct as well? I can't, I, I imagine that
1: it's part of the training. I did get to direct. So I took a couple of directing classes, directing theory classes and I um I directed a one act while I was there and then my thesis project was actually an adaptation that I I adapted a book of essays about body image called Adios Barbie and uh, I adapted this book for the stage and then I directed the adaptation as well so yeah you the the program was really flexible because dramaturgy is such a you know there's no one one real definition for dramaturgy each dramaturg it Approaches things in a different way. Each dramaturg, you know, presents in a different way in the room, and so, uh, so the program at the time anyway was very flexible to allow you to kind of come at it from a lot of different angles. Great,
0: yeah, it is interesting because I think what was funny when you were talking about the undergraduate and that assignment and how that person defined what it is, or how you defined what you were doing for Brian Friel's play. And uh, and then, and I think, right, there's so many different ways we look at it when we look at it, the new. like what's the role in a new play development? And- yeah,
1: exactly. Well, and, and that's the thing at the time, when I went to graduate school, I did not understand all of what dramaturgy was. I thought it was just researching the history and context of a play. I didn't understand the whole new play aspect, the whole, I had no idea that that was part of it. Fortunately, when I got to grad school and learned that, I was like, "Oh, that's really fascinating. I want to be doing that." And so that is, you know, now that is 100% my the thing that I love about dramaturgy is working with playwrights, working on new plays. Um, you know, I, of course, I I do work on plays that have been produced before, but my favorite thing is to to work on a new play
0: and to be yeah to be in the room. And how how did you? start? When you left grad school, where did you?
1: Yeah, when I left grad school, so there's no one perfect path to uh, landing a job in a theater. (laughs) Um, When I left grad school, I went, we moved to New York City. My wife and I moved to New York City, and uh, this was in 2000, um, so we were not married at the time, but we moved to New York City, and I started working for Theater Communications Group, Um, I was helping to manage grants at first, and then I started producing their national conference. Um, So I worked there for 10 years and was, you know, producing conferences, that's not dramaturgy, Uh, (laughs) unless you think about it in the right way, which I, I, I was also teaching at NYU in the educational theater program and doing a lot of freelance dramaturgy on the side, um, which is kind of the way that you have to get into things is, you know, all about sort of creating those, creating relationships. I'm just interested in that because the freelance, when people, when young people and everybody is now
0: becoming a young person to me, (laughs) um, says that they're a dramaturg and they're freelancing, I, I, I get excited because I know how important they are, you know, and then I also get this real concern, like, who's hiring you and how is that happening? Because you're usually most fortunate to work with a dramaturg if you're working at a regional theater or you're working at Manhattan Theater Club or you're, you know, like, you don't, you're not getting that if you're working independently as much. And did you find that? How did that happen? I'm kidding. it's funny I'm really just that one is, I'm'm I'm, I'm asking because I'm curious because I I now would tell I, I develop a lot of new plays but I would tell people like if somebody's a good dramaturg, you should work with them you know the funding's not well, always there
1: right the funding's not always there and so for me it was about you know making connections making relationships with people that I wanted to work with and uh, and and doing things without getting paid, you know, that's, I think that's why as a freelance dramaturg, I had, I had a full-time job, (laughs) you know, because you can't, you can't count on being paid all the time as a freelancer, even in New York city, I couldn't, there are, there are people who can make a career out of freelance dramaturgy. That was not, I was not in the right place or time to do that. So, you know, that was not my, not my experience, but there are people who can do that. No, some can, and
0: I just, it was interesting, I was, yeah, it was, and I think when you're working for free, I start thinking like, well, sure, the director does that, and the actor does that, and I think it's, I think it's one of the last places that budget is slotted for, (laughs) and yet everybody's doing a new play, and in the process, in the process of an early career artist self-producing, or a small theater company producing, they're producing the play before it's ready, and there's no time for
1: anybody to actually sit down and say, let me focus on the play, the script. If you are creating relationships with people, eventually that will turn into a paying gig. One day down the road, that'll turn into something that pays you. Right now, it might not. Right now, it might be about experience, you know? And I know that that's that's hard and that I I had the privilege to be able to do that because I had a full-time job. And not everybody has that ability to do that. But, you know, I think the more that you are kind of building those relationships, the more those are going to turn into something down the road. Yeah.
0: But also thinking about like you did your full-time job of thinking about it as an artist or, and I think it sounded like as an artist and doing yeah. it, not, not just as, well, this is my job. I have to make money, but like, no, I actually bring value to this. This is my artistry. That's right. Uh, makes you more valuable in the eyes of everyone you meet there.
1: That's right. Absolutely. And, and that turned into, um, while I was working there, I met Mark Cuddy, who is the artistic director of Jiva Theater Center. And when I was ready to be leaving New York City, it just, it happened to be the exact same time that they were looking for a literary director and dramaturg at Jeeva. And the timing was really good. But I, because I had that connection with Mark from working at Theater Communications Group, that is what led to me being in this position that I'm in now. Gotcha. Which is
0: pretty great. Just to, yeah. that the conversation could start. And had you been to Jiva?
1: Did you know you wanted to live in Rochester? Uh, <laughs> I had been to Jiva once before. Uh, my wife grew up in Henrietta, which is just out just outside of Rochester. Um, Emily Stork, she's a fantastic lighting designer. Um, she, she, she is a
0: fantastic lighting designer. Who I went to. <laughs> she was a senior when I was a freshman, I believe. That's uh, right. at College. I might. I believe senior. She was always smarter than I was, so it didn't matter. <laughs> Three years or four years smarter.
1: <laughs> yeah, she's, so um, she grew up here in Rochester, and so, you know, we had been coming to Rochester in the summers and the holidays to visit her family, and uh, one of the things that we knew, we had, my son was in uh kindergarten when we started looking and we we started feeling like we wanted to be closer to family. And so moving to Rochester felt really great. And, you know, after being, I had been to Jiva only once, as I said, but had really liked, you know, liked what I saw. And um, so then yeah, it was a it was a big leap to go from living in Brooklyn to living in Rochester. Um, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But really wonderful. But it must have been nice to have shifted from like
0: to, to fully be immersed in, oh, this is what I wanted to do versus the freelance part of it. And the freelance I think offers project based, which I have lived almost my whole life of doing that, which is great because you're taking on, you get fully immersed in one thing at a time. But what what was it? I say it must have been nice, but then the question is, what was it like to all of a sudden go and think, oh, I'm thinking, much like the way you talked about the conferences, I'm thinking longevity of being part of that ongoing conversation through the work we present. Yeah.
1: Well, it was it was a huge shift and it took me a little while to, to adjust to that. But one of the thing, one of the reasons that I was so excited to move to Rochester and to work at Jiva was that I wanted to be part of a community and I wanted to be doing work that was important to a community. And that's what, that's what we're doing at Jiva where a lot of our new play work right now is focused on Rochester stories. We're commissioning plays that are, you know, inspired by the history of this incredible town, Rochester. It was hugely progressive, you know, and uh, was a big part of all of these progressive movements. It's maybe not as progressive right now, um, but it has always been this sort of hotbed of, of, interesting ideas and people. Um, and so we're commissioning plays that uh, that are inspired by that history, but have a place on the national stage. So like The Agitators, which is a play written by Matt Smart about Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. We commissioned that, they lived here, they both lived here, they were friends for over 40 years. And it's, it was such an incredible project because of what it meant to this community. And that's exactly what I was looking for when we were leaving New York City was that kind of feeling like I was helping a community tell its story.
0: Yeah, and I got to watch the dress of that, which was really nice. And I actually am, I've been up at my mom's by the Mount Hope Cemetery, and I walk yes. probably once a week past the Frederick Douglass statue in Susan B. Anthony and think about our, because Sounds morbid. I walk through the cemetery often, but it's only because it's gorgeous.
1: It's a beautiful cemetery,
0: and it's uh, and it does. It gives me a place of reflection and peace, but also attachment. And I'm glad you said, yeah. I'd want to tell the story of the community too. Wherever you are, you want to make sure that people feel engaged, and and uh, and we do have a great history. Um, yeah, being absolutely. a Rochesterian, and I'm going to get the name wrong because I looked down and realized I didn't bring my notebook in front of me. But but uh, also what. The other project, and I'm curious from the beginning, uh, House of Sun, am I going to get that? Sun House.
1: Sun Sun House.
0: Sun
1: House. To another Rochester musician. Right? When he moved here, nobody knew who he was, but he became hugely popular in the 60s during the folk revival when these three guys from Massachusetts decided that they wanted to find the, the men who made the music. And so they went down to Mississippi looking for Son House, who um, was, uh, they call him the father of the Delta Blues. He was incredibly influential in um, the style of Delta Blues. Um, And in fact, you know, Robert uh, Johnson, um, who's a a hugely popular blues musician, uh, the story is that um, he sold his soul to the devil to learn how to play the guitar. But what is actually true is that Son House taught Robert Johnson how to play the guitar. So, but Sunhouse lived in Rochester and nobody had really been telling his story. There's a lot of blues musicians here who play his music. Um there is a lot of celebration of him locally, but you know, unless you really know the blues, you might not be familiar with Sunhouse. Um and so we we started by looking for a playwright to commission to tell his story. Um, and at the same time, we, we decided to produce a blues festival because why, why not? Um, <laughs> so, so we produced a four day blues festival that was kicked off by a reading of the first draft of a play by Keith Glover about Sun House and it's called Revival, the Resurrection of Sun House. And, uh, so we, we did a reading of that. That was in 2015, and it took, uh, it was, a, it's a huge story. It's enormous. So it took a long time for for us to be ready to commit to producing the play and also for the play to be in a place where it could be produced uh, just because it was, it's unwieldy. And so we, we did it in 2019, spring of 2019. We finally premiered it. And it was, it, so that was a five-year relationship with that story and that play.
0: And it's and did the, the Keith Glover script come because you, you Jeeva, formed a partnership, initiated that, or had he already started that idea?
1: No, he hadn't started the idea. We had, we'd been looking for a playwright to commission. We'd been looking for somebody who um, would be interested in telling Sunhouse's story, and so uh, we had started, Skip and I had been reading probably I think I read probably 45, plays by 45 different playwrights. And uh, in the end, we both felt that Keith was a great choice. So Keith wrote the play Thunder Knocking on the Door, which is about a blues musician, uh, which uh, who happened to be partially inspired by Son House. And uh, so it just felt like a really great... Uh, connection, we um, talked to Keith about the idea and um, commissioned him to write the play. And I found out afterwards that he told his agent that he would have written the play for no commission money. Um, of course, that's after we signed the contract. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that we should have asked him to write a play and not paid him for it, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it but was a course, passion you know. project for him, and and it was. And thankfully, we you know
0: don't fully take advantage of our all passion projects. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, th- so that was, um, you know, it's incredible to have that kind of long term relationship with a playwright.
0: Yeah, I was thinking.
1: Well, one of the reasons I thought about it is I think people.
0: Not only did you initiate a project that was community based and a community artist about a community artist. But also the idea that it's a five-year minimal from, you know, idea to like, oh, we're going to produce this and, and how much time it takes, you know.
1: I, I think that play, too, uh, it, it went through a lot of development throughout the rehearsal process as well, you know, which was a four-week rehearsal process. And then I, 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 I would say, and I, I think that Keith would probably agree, that after seeing the production, there are new things that 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 you learn about the play and so i i imagine that keith would agree that the play is not not done yet. that there's probably you know some things that he learned from that production that he would change going forward
0: yeah and i, and I well I, also and I, I don't need to spin into how imperfect everything is but i was thinking about that and just the idea of continuing to develop and workshop it and that it's thorough yeah and when the project did you with Matt Smart, did he initiate that project? Did he already have a script about the about Frederick Douglass? Or how did that come about?
1: No, uh, yeah, that was another commission. So we were Matt was here. We were we were producing another of his plays, *Tinker to Everest to Chance*, uh, which was a premiere. And um, while he was here, we were we were really interested in, uh, and this is something we still do, trying to help our playwrights who who are here know a little bit more about uh, about Beva and about Rochester. And so we took him to a bunch of places that that we thought would help him understand the Rochester community and our audiences. Um, And one of those places was the the Susan B. Anthony house. Um, And uh, he went and was looking at the statue by Pepsi Kedavong of Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass having tea. And he had no idea that they had been friends. This was at the time that um, Trayvon Martin had just been killed. And um, his He standing there looking at this statue of these two incredible leaders, uh, a black man and a white woman having tea together in the middle of a middle class neighborhood with kids, you know, kids, these statues are larger than life. So kids play on them all the time. Um, And so there were kids around and, and he just started thinking about, you know, what we could learn from that friendship that would help us address what's happening right now in our country um and so he he did send me the idea to do a play about that we weren't at a, at a point where we were commissioning plays yet um and I was like that's a great idea let me know when you when you write it and he was like I don't know if I'm going to <laughs> <laughs>
0: smart, and so, smart see if you t- didn't do the Keith Glover yeah. like oh I'm f- for free
1: I'm happy Exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, what happened was that we, um, we started thinking about it and about how much we wanted that play on our stage. And, um, so we looked for a grant. Niska has a grant that theaters can apply for to commission playwrights. Um, and so we applied to to the New York State Council on the Arts uh, to commission Matt Smart. And so they underwrote the commission um, and we, we commissioned him. He then um, came to Rochester a lot. We spent a lot of time together in all kinds of archives, talking to all kinds of people locally um, about both Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. Um, he did a lot of other research on his own in other places. And then the play you know, came out of that, but he did not have that play in his drawer um, when we met. I think that's, it's great, and
0: I'm thinking about it differently than just a literary manager, and, and I don't remember, I do remember that I, at 1990, I was at the Berkshire Theater Festival as an intern, and they did a play by somebody who had just done a play at Chiva, and they did not say the most flattering things about their experience in Rochester, and so it was pre-Mark Cuddy, um, uh-huh. and I remember being in the audience as, a, I wasn't an intern, I was working in the uh, box office, and I remember thinking like, Hey, that's not my city, you're a dope, and so I'm glad just to hear, and I don't want to say the playwright's name or you know how they summed up you know rochester uh, i'm I'm sure it involved a garbage plate, you know, which was always part of the history of the city right. and uh, but I remember thinking like, oh, there's so much more, so just even the simple fact of like, oh, when writers come, we make sure they know that there's something about is, you know, I want to say it sounds like the TCG and dramaturgical experience of like, you should know there's, there's a history to know about not only just to inspire you, not only to connect you more to where you are, but maybe it'll inspire what you're thinking about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's one, one thing that we're doing now, too, is when we, so we have these artist apartments that are empty over the summer, and um, we have been offering playwrights the opportunity to come and spend a week in those uh, apartments and just write. It doesn't have to be anything for us. It doesn't have to be, you know, but when they leave, what I do want them to do, so I, you know, fill their apartment with books about stories from Rochester And what I do want them to do when they leave is to tell me what they would be interested in writing about. What about Rochester would would you be interested in? What piques your interest? And so several commissions have actually come out of the fact that a playwright comes and spends a week here in Rochester, learns about something, and, you know, we now have several plays um, that are in their first draft that are because of, or or second or third draft, um, but that have come out of um, spending a week in our apartments over the summer.
0: What's the theater doing at this point in the limbo of not knowing
1: what's next? You're doing that. Well, in the limbo of not knowing what's next, nobody is in our apartments. Um, So, unfortunately, we can't do that. Um, But we are, um, you know, we're doing our own podcast um, called Out of the Rehearsal Hall, where we're able to connect with artists um, around the country who are in our Jiva family and just connect them with our community. Um, We're doing uh, some programming, some... uh, digital programming called happiness hours on Fridays at four, um, which are, you know, sometimes they're songs, sometimes it's storytelling, sometimes it's talking about somebody's new book. Um, so there's, there's sort of a lot of, a whole bunch of different kinds of things we're doing to try and stay connected with our community. You know, Jiva really values our, um, Rochester community and the audience, you know, connections that we have, um, and so we're trying to make sure that we're we're staying in touch with people. Um, so those are the those are the two main things that we're doing, and we're starting now. We're also um, next week is our big annual fundraiser, which is virtual this year. So there's a lot of focus on that, but as soon as that's over um we are really focusing now on what's next um what comes after this and um there are lots of possibilities um but right now there's so much we don't know that it's it's a little challenging to kind of predict what will what will come out of this
0: what's the role how do you function in that the, you know you've mentioned Mark who's the artistic director and Skip the associate but i feel like there's like a triumvirate, there's like a, there's a role the literary manager plays in those conversations about how we're going to communicate with our community and what message and I'm just curious what the job partakes in a a leadership role do you feel or your experience?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, um, I imagine that it's different in every theater. Um, based on you know who, who the people are uh, and what the what the setup is. Um, Mark specifically when he started um, when he started at Jiva wanted to think about, artistic education and literary as sort of the, the leading um, forces at the theater. Um, So Skip is our director of education and artists in residence. And we have um, just for the past year had an associate artistic director uh, and director of engagement, Peron Yusuf Zada. Um, And so, so engagement has kind of become a fourth thing, fourth category. Although I think a lot of, we were doing a lot of engagement already, as you can tell that the the focus on community um, in the conversation is, that's all part of engagement. Um, But uh, I would say that my job is to ask questions, is to, um, you know, uh, I mean, I honestly feel a lot of times like I'm dramaturging the theater um, because my job is to ask the hard questions, to ask things about, um, you know, why are we doing this? What are the, how does it, how, is, is this serving the mission the way that we want it to? Are, what are the holes? Where Who are we not, whose stories are we not telling? um and what are we not seeing. So my my job is a lot about asking questions and and um and also you know being ready with um a lot of sort of information about what's out there, what other theaters are doing, who other artists are that we should be thinking about. Um, so really kind of trying to keep my ear open to everything I can see and read and think about um so that um so that I'm helping to communicate all of that kind of stuff so that, that we have kind of, I don't know, all of the context that we need to have to make a decision, which is what a dramaturg does as well. Right. <laughs> so it is in a lot of ways, like what I'm doing is dramaturging the theater. which so
0: I think is great because it doesn't mean changing a decision or not changing a decision, but it's deepening a decision no matter what. Yeah. Like, like yeah. okay, we want to do that play. Let's be clear why we're exactly. doing that play. And I think that's yep. that's great how do you stay connected to everything that you want to pay attention to that's
1: going on? <laughs> it's really hard, right? Cause there's so much going on. Um, so it it's about going in the, in the before times when we could leave our homes, um, <laughs> it was about, you know, going to new play showcases, going to readings, making sure that I'm connected um, to other other literary managers and hearing what other people are excited about and who other people are excited about. It's paying attention to any time that somebody announces award recipients, who those people are, who they're kind of lifting up. Um, I get a lot of information from graduate schools about playwrights who are graduating uh, from MFA program. So it's really looking at those and thinking about who's interesting there. I also, my uh, assistant literary director, uh, Fran Daslavera, um, we have different tastes and different experiences. And what is fantastic about that is that our, our, our ears get perked up about different things. And so the two of us have really become a great kind of, um, uh, partnership in trying to make sure that we're hearing what's going on in the world. So it's, it's also about, you know, making sure that I'm listening to what she's excited about.
0: Yeah. And how, if I don't ask this, I'll I'll get killed. What's the best way? I heard, like, other people telling you things in a war, which is great, because I think that is paying attention to, like, what other people you respect are paying attention to. But if there's a playwright in this, I, I wrote a little essay about fear for the literary manager after the pandemic, because your <laughs> inbox will be full from everybody's attempt to write Lear. Um, uh, but... What do you find in a, in a very serious way? Like, what is the best way for playwrights to get your attention, to build a relationship, to do it in a in a very sincere way? I mean, there's always the like, let me send you a play because I wrote it and I finished it, but the, that doesn't tend to
1: work uh, because. Yeah, and so, we have we have so many so many people who want to send us plays and there are are really two of us reading them, um, that we can't can't accept every play that somebody finishes, right? So if playwrights have an agent, um, we will accept any play from an agent. Uh, A lot of emerging writers don't have agents. Um, And so I think what's the important thing is to understand what the theater is um and to reach out to me and say and and if if they're going to be in town make a personal connection with me because if you have a personal connection with me or with someone else at the theater then I want to read what you're writing um but it has to and it might be at a new play showcase I often I'll go to new play showcases and come back with more plays from playwrights who were not featured at that showcase than I do the the plays that were featured you know so go to the new play showcases meet the literary directors who are there i think those are really important because it is as you know horrible as it may be theater is an art form that is built on relationships and on knowing people um and so you have to just make those relationships i want to meet the playwrights so i want to get to know them um you know, and I think that's the, that's honestly the best way. It might not be able to happen immediately after the pandemic, um, but and when we're in a place where these things are happening again, that kind of connection is really important. And it's a connection, right? I mean, it's not, it's, you don't have to sell me on the play you're writing. It, exactly. In fact, I probably don't want that. I probably want to know more about you in that moment. And then later, you know, at the end of the conversation, say, can I send you a play? And I will 100% say yes, please.
0: Yeah. And yeah, it's great because I think people don't, I think everybody understands it's relationship building and then they forget. And it's hard, you know, it is hard to maintain it's relationships hard. across the country. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I find it hard to maintain relationships <laughs> in my neighborhood, you know. <laughs> exactly. And, but it is hard to keep that going. And But the one thing I also feel, and I don't know if this is true for you, I feel like when you've made that relationship, the great thing about the, in my opinion about theater, is they don't go away. Right. Like if if you and I connected at a conference three years ago and then we have a reason to reconnect, it's not like you forgot that we had an interaction, that we had a genuine connection. Right, exactly. Connection, you yeah. know? And it's understood that we're not standing next to each other or in the same building every day. You right, know?
1: And, yeah, uh, exactly.
0: And I had a I had a student I talked to because of the college collab, but I got to talk to students at Center College in Kentucky and I asked them what they needed and the first first answer was great. The first person said I said, What do you need in this pandemic as somebody who's about to graduate? First person said hope, which I thought yeah. was beautiful and honest and, you know, the only hope I could offer is the same thing the person, the artistic director that Guthrie talked about, and that was the idea that theater has been around a long time. Uh, we'll continue to do theater and and people want to do theater, but the other thing they said was knowing that people might not be in the building, how do they, how do they enter the career and, you know, internships and apprenticeships, and I'm not putting that on you, but my question is are you doing that right now? Are you utilizing people at Jiva, not knowing that they can come into a building?
1: Are you doing that? Is there a way for people to be early career artists to be engaged? We are not there yet. Other theaters might be, but we're not quite there yet. Um, And when we are, I imagine it will be something that, that we list on our website and send out notices for and that kind of thing. I will say to the student who was asking about hope, I've been reading um, Rebecca Solnit's book from, it's actually from 2004, called Hope in Dark Times. And um, it has been, uh, and she's talking about good th- things that have come out of darkness and how people hold on to hope. And it has been really, really powerful to me to read that um, uh, it, and to think about, you know, what is possible um, now. And, and the kinds of conversations and awarenesses that we are having now about what's happening in the world that because perhaps because we are paused um, that are uh, that are possible now in a way that they weren't possible before. I'm enjoying and
0: appreciating the pace of being yeah. able to talk to people and really and, and having a moment to think and remembering, you know, not remembering, but really investing in my value system during this time of like, oh, these are things I value. These are when the things I don't have that are really important to me, you know, uh, yeah. int- intimacy and things that we get through the theater are really right. important to me. Uh, right. But also things that aren't important to me that I end up spending a lot of time on. <laughs> in the, I forgot how you referenced it, but before times. Yes, exactly. uh, You know, and I'm grateful for that. And I think the hope message is good, but I wanted to ask if you, uh, if you have any advice, any besides, which is a good hope, just anybody who's pursuing a career in the arts or specifically your
1: field. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, I... I would have two things I would say. I think one is that there's there's no single path. There is no right way to do it, right? Um, uh, there's no right way to enter into this field. And it may be that you're entering into the field later down the road. It may be that you know you you take a sidestep um, for other reasons. It may be that you pause and come back. There's no one way to be a theater artist. Um, and I think the other thing that I would say is that, you know, you can, um, you cannot not have all the answers and still be doing your job, still be an artist, still be exploring and asking questions and making a difference. And it's okay to not have all the answers all the time.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's the most powerful thing I ever learned is the most, the most empowering thing for me to say was, I don't know. Yeah, you know, and just, and I don't know, let's figure it out. And like you said, young people can teach us so much. I think like it's, it's an odd time and opportunity to say like, Oh, we're going to communicate differently now, (laughs) you know, and you guys have figured out a way to communicate for like, you know, a decade now that's different than how I would do it. So how would you do it today?
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think often, um, because dramaturgy in, in particular is a field that can be so very academic, there's a pressure to know all the things and to, to be the one with the right answers. And that's actually not the best way to be a dramaturg. And sometimes the best way to be a dramaturg is to, to, is to ask the hard questions that you don't have an answer for you know, that, that might lead you to something else because you're exploring something. Um, So I, I, you know, I think that's probably one of the most important things to learn.
0: That was great. Um, I really appreciated that. I also appreciated I appreciate it at the end just saying that it's that there's no one way to have a theater career, and it'd be a. And I think, you know, at this period of COVID and social distancing, it's important to remember there's, you know, there is no way to do it, and we don't know how to do it, and it's going to be different. So as we're thinking about it, and you're thinking about how to go about it, just. I want to also say when she said it was nice, you know, you don't have to know everything as the dramaturg and it's the questions asked. One of the things I've been thinking about in this period is we don't have to know what's next. We don't have to know how to do what we wanted, what we were meant to do. And um, you don't have to know, nobody knows right now. So try, you know, we don't have to know the right thing. Ask the questions, ask, what do you want to do? How do you want to create? Who can you create with and try something if you want to. Don't let this period paralyze us. I know that some people it's hard because of jobs not being available, of work, just steady employment of other, any kind, but to try and to engage in ways that work for you creatively. And I'm really, uh, I really appreciated the idea of not knowing because we don't know at this period. And I also, the idea that there's a path that there's not one way to do it is true. And I think we're all forging our own path at this time. So trust yourself and know that you're doing great and you're doing the best you can. And on that, also Diana Smith, who is the one who said hope at Center College is what she needed at this time. I did read the book that Jenny recommended, Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit, and it's great. It's very hopeful. It gave me hope in the idea of that was about protesting and about creating change, which is obviously relevant to today, and we can see that some change is occurring. But in times that felt dark, there is change that's happening. So even if we don't know it's coming or how, it happens through hope. So it's a great great book. I'm glad she mentioned it. I'm glad she recommended it. And uh, if anybody's feeling like they need a little hope, check out the book. And I hope everybody keeps doing what you're doing to stay safe and healthy. And if you're doing something creative, share it with the farm, you know, and if I hope uh, the podcast is inspiring or thoughtful or comforting or something for you and share that with people and but feel free to email us and check us out wherever you get your podcast. rate us review us i do know that helps people find it and yeah stay well and with that we're out